Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Okay, on today's episode, I am speaking with my friend, uh, Thomas A. Guglielmo, who is professor and chair of the Department of American Studies at George Washington University. He's the author of White on Arrival, Italians, Race, Color, and Power in Chicago, 1890 to 1940, which won the Frederick Jackson Turner Award of the Organization of American Historians. And his latest book, which just came out, is called Divisions, A New History of Racism and Resistance in America's World War II Military. Uh, So Tom, welcome to Race and Democracy. Thanks so much, Peniel. Really, really appreciate being here. Now, this is an extraordinary book. This is the best book on um, race and the history of World War II that I've ever read. And so we'll start by saying that. What inspired you to write this book? How long have you been working on it? And what inspired the great cover by Charles White from 1944, very famous African-American iconic painter called Soldier, um, which I don't really think I had seen as well. This is really extraordinary. Thanks. Well, first, thanks so much for the the high praise about the book. It means so much to me, especially coming from you, Peniel. I've got a lot of respect for um, all the work that you've been doing over the years. Um, so, so I'll start with the painting, you know, yeah, I just, the Charles White painting is just spectacular. I know this is a podcast, so people won't be able to actually see it, but I, I, uh, I urge people to, you know, to, to actually take a look at the cover or to just Google Charles White soldier. Um, you know, I was at a, a small symposium on, race in the military in Paris in uh, 2018, I guess. And, you know, on the program for this small symposium, they uh, had this image of Charles White's painting, which I had never seen before, you know, and I'd been working on, by that point, I'd been working on this book for a good decade and, and felt like I had seen most of the really good images of of black soldiers, for example. And, um, but this was new and, you know, I just, uh, it was, it was, um, yeah, it's just such a kind of a moving, powerful representation of just the, the mix of emotions that military service, um, uh, evoked in, in, in black people. Um, so anyway, that's, that's why it's on the cover. Um, the inspiration for the book, you know, uh, as you know, I've been working on it for a really long time. You know, I my first book was about Italian immigrants in Chicago, and I spent some time in the National Archives. This is now 20 years ago, um, working on that book. And, and at that time, I just came across piles and piles of incredibly rich primary source materials on ordinary people and racism during the war. And I just thought, wow. This is just um, such amazing uh, source material. It would make an amazing book. Um, and I also knew, of course, that World War II is this this uh, watershed moment in U.S. history. And and there's been lots written on race in the war, but there were no nice syntheses about about that story. And so I thought, well, maybe I could do that. Um, and so I started working on it in 
2005. I was on sabbatical 2005 to 2006. Um, started writing in 2008, 2009 when you and I were on on leave together in Boston. Um, and yeah, it just took a, a way more time than I ever expected, and 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 it morphed, you know. So initially, it started as this grand synthesis of race and the war, and that ended up just being too much for me to handle. Um, and so I. Uh, I had started drafting chapters just by chance on the military. They were supposed to be just two of eight chapters on the military, but those two chapters became four, six, eight, you know, nine chapters. And so uh, I realized, I don't know, about five or six years ago that it made sense to focus on the military in particular because there's just so much to say. Um, and, uh, and, and so that's kind of the, the backstory. Well, let's um, start with the beginning because, um, you know, in your introduction, you talk about um, both the wealth of resources and archival material that you looked through over a hundred different archives. But you talk, you say the terms division, line, boundary, divide, um, and so forth, all of which are used interchangeably, refer to acts, uh, individual, collective, or institutional, conscious or unconscious. Uh, implicit or explicit, formal or informal, symbolic, physical, affective, or behavioral that distinguish some persons from other persons and in the process unite some persons with other persons. So this idea of um, divisions, which is really throughout, and you see these at times racial divisions, but you see all kinds of divisions. Um, And there are some divisions within the U.S. military over how to treat not just uh, Black Americans, but uh, Japanese Americans, Chinese Americans, Mexican Americans, Puerto Ricans, um, Indigenous uh, Americans. It's so fascinating, and I had never read such an in-depth account. Um, but let's start at the beginning. Um, when we think about the Second World War, you really open when you when you're you talk about the Jim Crow boomerang. Why were why weren't African-Americans, Black Americans drafted um, at their demographic rate. You estimate that there's probably a half a million more Blacks who could have been drafted in the war, but who were rejected. And this really had huge political consequences and economic consequences, because as you show in this book, the war for soldiers who survived, um, but even for those who didn't, the war provided these benefits. The war gave people more, offered more literacy. Uh, people were coming, still coming out of the depression, gave people food, <laughs> uh, clothes, um, all kinds of benefits that many millions of Americans actually needed in that context. And as we know, after the end of the war uh, with the GI Bill, the infantry bill, so many of the soldiers got access to education, to home loans. Uh, it really sort of set up the future of the the American middle class, Black people disproportionately not having access. Why weren't they drafted in the numbers that they should have been or, or really accepted into the military, even at times when they tried to just enlist? Yeah, yeah, this is a, this is a really important story. So yeah, I, I estimate, so at the very beginning of the war, the War Department, which oversees the Army and the Army Air Force, um, you know, they make a promise to the American people, a public promise that that African Americans would serve in the proportion, in, in, proportionally, that they that their percentage of 
um, um, service personnel would match their percentage of people in the U.S. population. And ultimately, that never happened. And as you say, I argue that had African-Americans served proportionally, an additional half a million, half a million uh, African-Americans would have served in the military. Um, uh, why did that happen? That happened primarily because military leadership, and it was military leadership. It wasn't folks in the draft, uh, in the selective service. Um, they were more than happy to to draft proportional numbers of African-Americans. Um, but the military was determined to restrict the number of African-Americans who entered the military. And they did so for two reasons, primarily. One, they had um, you know, these racist views about African-Americans' abilities as service personnel. And so they believed deeply, um, kind of across the board, that fewer African-Americans in the military meant a stronger military. But the other thing that they believed deeply was that um, was that a segregation required limited black enlistment. That is, they they feared that if uh, African Americans were allowed to join the military in unlimited numbers, it would kind of uh, put too much stress on kind of existing black units and on the need to create larger numbers of black units, and therefore it would lead inevitably to integration. And at the beginning of the war, especially, um, that was just a completely unthinkable thing for military leadership, among other people. And so for those two reasons, there was this systematic, sustained effort that I lay out in that first chapter, really complex, ever-changing strategy to keep large numbers of African-Americans, proportional numbers of African-Americans out of the military. And that effort was ultimately successful. Um, and as you say, you know, this had huge consequences down the road. You know, we've, we, we, there's a lot of scholarship on how African-Americans, as you say, did not have equal access to, you know, um, to all of these amazing government programs during the war, uh, sorry, during the 30s and 40s. Um, in 50s and 60s, in that kind of middle part of the 20th century, when the middle class of the United States was kind of expanded in an unprecedented way, um, we have a lot of inf- a lot of great scholarship on how African Americans were restricted. But this is a kind of a piece of the story that people haven't actually seen, I think, and that is restriction from military service during World War II also meant restriction from the welfare state in the post-war years. And it deeply shaped the opportunities and life chances of African-Americans in the, in the post-war years. And, you know, you, you very early on um, by chapter two, enlisting and excluding an enemy race, look at panoramically how different people of color were treated. I've, I've never um, really read in in as much depth, depth as divisions, uh, the treatment of um, really all uh, non-black people. But you know, you do a great job looking at how Japanese Americans are treated. And can can you discuss that? Like how how are Japanese Americans treated um, during the Second World War, and how does the military, especially when we think about Japanese internment? And right. this violation of really human rights and citizenship that is still a stain on on the nation. Um, how how are they treated? Well, there, it's a big, complicated question. So much of the book deals in parts with that. But I'll start with this question about access to the military itself. 
um, because that's what's focused in that. That's the focus of that second chapter. So, you know, the first chapter looks at the ways in which blacks were were systematically restricted um, in very large numbers from military service during the war. Uh, and I should, by, by the way, add that over a million African-Americans ended up serving in World War II. So while there was this systematic attempt to, to keep their numbers down, still a huge number of people still served. I don't want people to, to, um, to misunderstand that. Um, in terms of Japanese-Americans, what ends up happening is, so, so their experiences in the military are deeply shaped by the twists and turns of the war. And, 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 and so, for example, early on, before the U.S. is involved in the war, prior to the attack on Pearl Harbor, Japanese Americans, um, well, long before that, they're more or less excluded from the, the, the army and completely excluded from the Navy. But then once the Draft Act is passed in the fall of 1940, the doors start opening up to Japanese American enlistment not in the Navy. The Navy refuses to accept Japanese Americans throughout the war. So that is a continuity that runs from the beginning to the end of the war. But Japanese Americans in the army start gaining full access to the, to the army shortly after the Selective Training and Service Act is passed in 1940. Um, and so they're kind of being included in the army alongside white people and, and kind of in the same sorts of numbers, not, not numbers, but the same kind of rates. Um, but then the attack on Pearl Harbor happens, um, and there's kind of complication, uh, confusion uh, about how Japanese Americans are to be treated. Should they be? Uh, should they remain fully included in the U.S. Army? Ultimately, the Army says no. We're going to shut our doors completely, and that's what they do. So they kind of join the Navy in early 1942 and say, you know what, Japanese Americans are too dangerous. They're, they're too untrustworthy. Their Americanness is in doubt. We feel like they could be agents of Japan. We have no way of determining their loyalty in, in the ways we can for white people. And so therefore, on this basis, so they're drawing on all the same kind of racist arguments that uh, led to internment. And they're saying now the army is that Japanese Americans can't enlist at all. So enlistment of Japanese Americans is completely... Um, um, completely uh, shut down. Um, but then by early 43, they're allowed, some are allowed to uh, uh, volunteer out of uh, incarceration camps on the West Coast and in Arkansas. Um, and then by four, that was early 43, by 44, they're actually getting drafted out of those same incarceration camps. Um, and so you see kind of something of a full circle for Japanese or, or lots of change. Um, the, the story for African-Americans is, 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 has some change too, because they had been totally excluded from certain branches of the military, um, like the Marine Corps, for example, and those sorts of exclusions fall away during the war. But again, those restrictions never do. And that is a continuity for Japanese Americans. Things are constantly changing. They're totally excluded, then they're included um, kind of along the lines of white people, then they're completely excluded again, then they're included in kind of fits and starts over the rest of the war. Um, so that just gives you a sense, just speaking in terms of access to the military, gives you a sense of just how complex Japanese Americans' experiences were during the war in the U.S. military. Tom, who was William Hasty 
and and discuss the efforts by William Hasty and and the NAACP and others to um, have racially integrated units uh, in the military, um, and how successful were those efforts, and which branches? Because you just talked about the Navy not letting Japanese enlistees ever during the Second World War. Which branches were more amenable to some kind of reform and which ones were intractable when it comes to the desegregation of black or so-called colored troops? Well, I'll start with William Hasty. So William Hasty was a, is a really important part of this story um, because so he was, I believe it was after the war, he became dean of the law school at Howard University. He was a federal judge uh, in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Um, and and in 1940, he accepts a position as an advisor on race issues, uh, mainly African issues related to African-American soldiers uh, in the War Department. So he works under Henry L. Stimson, who's the Secretary of War during World War II. And Hasty, prior to this, is very active in the NAACP. And the NAACP had kind of, you know, um, kind of changed their views on integration in the military a little bit. In the early, in the mid thirties, they, they oppose military segregation, um, but they're not super outspoken about it. And they understand that it's a super controversial issue and they're not really sure how forcefully to push against military segregation. But by 1940 and, and, and William Hasty is really one of the um, kind of key players here you know, he's kind of convinced that uh, that a military that says it's fighting for democracy and freedom cannot be segregated. And so the NAACP, by about 1940, starts really coming around to believing that this actually needs to be a central civil rights issue of the World War II years, that these so-called black units, which really weren't black units, they were black units in the sense that all, all soldiers in these, all enlisted personnel in these units were black. But the, the, the senior most officers were almost entirely white. Um, in any case, the civil rights establishment, the black civil rights establishment, kind of slowly comes around to this view that, again, military integration has to be a central dimension of civil rights struggle during, during the war. Um, and so you see kind of over the course of the war, I think people assume that this was always this really important big civil rights issue, but it really wasn't. It was not on anyone's agenda or it was on very few people's agenda in the late 30s. But by early by the early 40s, it's increasingly becoming this really important demand of black civil rights activists. Um, and I really feel like, you know, um, there's this there. I, I tell the story about this kind of growing movement to demand integration in the military. And, you know, Truman's executive order in 1948 to desegregate the military or, or to eventually um, desegregate the military. You know, you can't understand that move if you don't understand this grassroots struggle that developed slowly but powerfully over the course of the war to demand integration in the military. Now. I want to talk about the Jim Crow in uniform, and you you have very very moving uh, letters written by uh, black uh, soldiers um, talking about German prisoners free to move around the camp, unlike black soldiers who were restricted. The Germans walked right into the doggone place like any white American 
we were wearing the same uniform, but we were excluded. And that's a 1944 letter to Truman Gibson, who replaced Hasty, William Hasty, as the War Department's chief uh, Negro advisor. But you also talk about um, officer candidate schools, and even when there were efforts at having uh, racially integrated uh, officer candidate schools, uh, black candidates slept at the end of quarters, away from everyone, everyone else, and were excluded from recreational halls. So, talk to to us about how 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 did Jim Crow impact uh, the training of soldiers, uh, the 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 ranks of mi- military personnel, um, how people were um, treated, and their efforts to gain promotions, to gain access, to gain knowledge and information and training. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this is a piece that uh, many people don't fully understand just how expansive racism was, anti-black racism was in the U.S. military during the war. So we've talked about two dimensions of this, right? We've talked already about the ways in which a black enlistment was greatly restricted. We've also talked about the ways in which units, fighting units, um, were segregated during the war. And that's usually what people think of when they think of military racism. But um, but it was it was so much more far-reaching than that. It shaped absolutely every aspect of black soldiers' military lives in uniform, right? So it shaped not just, again, their access to the military and the kinds of units they were serving in. It shaped the sorts of jobs they had. It shaped the kinds of money they made in those for the working for those military jobs. It shaped the kinds of promotions they could get. It shaped the kinds of rank they could achieve. There were all kinds of restrictions on the number of commissions that African-Americans received. You asked in a previous question, you know, what were some of the variations across the services? You know, so the, the army, I think, had thousands of black officers by the end of the war. The Navy had several dozen, you know, so while, whereas the Navy was integrating in certain ways, um, um, more so than the army by the end of the war, um, when it came to promotions and when it came to commissions and when it came to positions of authority, the army actually gave um, African-Americans a, a better shot than did the Navy, but neither of them gave a fair shot to African-Americans when it came to promotions, when it came to, to positions of authority. Um, racism shaped recreational facilities, um, not just throughout the United States, not just in the South, but in the North, in the West, and absolutely everywhere that the U.S. military traveled during the war. In Australia, there were segregated pools and bars and nightclubs. Same went for China. The same went for India. The same went for um, Dakar in West Africa. The same went for Italy and France and England and Germany and Belgium and, 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 um, and points in between, Pacific Islands. You know, so there was a level of expansiveness. It shaped kind of who whom soldiers could date and potentially marry. The military often greatly restricted African-Americans' ability to um, have friendships, romantic relationships with all kinds of people, not just white people, sometimes even black people in Africa, if those black people were dating white officers or white soldier, American soldiers. Those white soldiers and officers said, well, we can't be sharing women, even Af- even black women in this case. So the point is that these these racial lines, these color lines, this racism um, was expansive geographically. It was expansive in terms of the kinds of um, 
uh, dimensions of life. It shaped um, and um, and it was expansive in terms of time. You know, there there yes, there were moments when some of this racism, um, as a consequence of of indefatigable civil rights organizing on the black and soldiers, black soldiers, there were times when some of these color lines uh, blurred a bit or, or or fell away or were defeated. Um, but for the most part, um, this racism was an enormous force both at the beginning of the war and at the end of the war and again all around the United States and all around the world. I want to talk about those feelings of bonding. You know, um, in in the chapter Bonds and Barriers, you talk about um, uh, an Ojibwe uh, Native American uh, recalling his feeling of complete acceptance while serving in the army during World War II. And that chapter opens with a, a Japanese American soldier who's riding home uh, while training at, a, at, a, at an army camp in Texas um, and talking about racial discrimination and talking about uh, are the Japanese colored as well. Uh, and, and then there's one, when the war started, I became a white man. So talk about the bonds and barriers. And, and was there a difference between the way in which some people of color could acclimate and maybe get access to racial privilege for the first time? Uh, between that non-blacks and blacks in terms of those bonds and barriers with with um, white troops and white military personnel? Yeah, yeah, this is a really important point and a really important question. So one of the uh, challenges in this book was to try to make sense of the various forms of racism that uh, the military um, um, produced and reproduced. You know, and, and how did those racisms shape the experiences of African-Americans and other folks of color, Japanese-Americans, Mexican-Americans, Indigenous-Americans, Puerto Ricans, and so forth? And, and as you can imagine, those stories are really, really complicated. So I just spent a bunch of time talking about the kinds of racism that African-Americans faced in uniform while training and fighting overseas. I'll just say a little bit about... Um, non-black, what I call non-black minorities, um, and their experiences, because they're really, really complex. So I should also say that African-Americans' experiences could be complex, despite the fact that there was all this um, entrenched racism in the military. Um, You know, African-Americans moved overseas, and they met friendly Italians and friendly Brits and friendly French people and friendly folks, Pacific Islanders and Australians, and they were inspired and, and moved by, by the, the ability of, of, of these people, sometimes white people, to kind of ignore racist conventions that were so powerful in the U.S. And, and you know, um, uh, Medgar Evers has this great kind of, or I, I, actually, I guess it's his brother who says, you know, Medgar Evers, my brother, came back with this new sense of hope that people, all kinds of people could live in peace together because that's what he experienced for the very first time when he was dating a French woman serving in the European theater during the war. Um, so there were these moments of change and possibility and openness um, for black soldiers overseas. There were even more of these opportunities for non-black minority soldiers. Um, so Mexican-Americans, American Indians, uh, Puerto Ricans, um, you know, Japanese Americans, Chinese Americans, um, they were not, the bottom line is they were not segregated to the same extent 
as African-American troops were. That's the bottom line. They faced their own forms of racism, no doubt. And I try to, you know, detail those um, in the book. But nonetheless, structurally speaking, they were placed, you know, in far, they were given far more opportunities to, to train, train and to serve shoulder to shoulder with white troops. And in time, that had its effects, you know, um, that sometimes, you know, broke down color lines that divided, say, Japanese Americans from white Americans or Mexican Americans from Anglos. And, 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 you know, ultimately created these comradely bonds that um, would not have existed on the home front, would not have existed in the civilian world. So for some of these non-black minorities, again, they all of them faced various forms of racism, but they faced greater acceptance, greater tolerance, greater openness uh, from white soldiers than African-Americans ever did. And part of that, again, is a consequence of military policy. Military policy put these non-black minority troops in white units far more often than they did with African-Americans and therefore created the opportunities for these kinds of uh, boundary breaking, for this kind of boundary breaking to happen. Now, in the last part of the book, um, one of the last chapters is called Deploying Jim Crow. And I thought this was fascinating uh, because it really shows us sort of um, the culmination in certain ways of this buildup that the book shows in terms of the recruitment, uh, the, the the training, um, the politics that go with there, but then this deployment of this multiracial army military that's segregated and sort of um, the experiences that both the troops have in real reality, but also the way in which their supporters back home including their mothers, their girlfriends, their wives. And you talk about Black women, for instance, who are part of the waves and the wax who are deployed. Um, talk about what happens once sort of Jim Crow is deployed. We have these soldiers who are in the European theater and you've got great, the, the book has such great photos and you have a photo of even a, a, a GI, a Black GI with a European wife which certainly is anti-white supremacy <laughs> and certainly um, crossing the color line. Um, what happens once these troops are, are deployed uh, in the European theater? Um, yeah, so this is, yeah, such an interesting story, right? Because the military has such a, um, you know, a powerful hold on race relations when they're in the U.S. They can kind of, to some extent, control things a bit. But once they move overseas, and I can focus on Europe in particular, you know, they, they, they still have immense control, but there's this um, enormous struggle over, over to what extent the U.S. military will be able to transplant its racist conventions to this new place. Um, Ireland, England, France, Italy, Germany, Belgium, um, you know, uh, which has its own racism, you know, these places are not kind of free of racism. Obviously, they have imperial histories um, that are, 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 are deeply shaped by racism. But, but African-American troops are, are, are Americans. They've got resources. They're not, they're not migrants. They're not planning on living in these countries forever. Um, 
They're, they're liberators in many cases. So it's just a kind of a different dynamic. And what ends up happening in so many cases, you know, African-American soldiers are reporting over and over again how friendly foreigners are to them. And this isn't universal by any means. They're also facing a kind of a, a, a homegrown racism in some of these European countries as well. But even so, um, there's just so many stories of, of, you know, visiting people's homes and being invited over for dinner and being invited to social clubs and being invited out to bars for drinks. And, and so African-American troops are, are welcomed by white people into their hearts and homes in a way that kind of happens so, so rarely in the U.S. So it was this kind of revolutionary, could be this revolutionary and transformative experience for, for some African-American troops. Um, and the military, of course, that is not interested in blurred lines. They're interested in very distinct, um, impermeable black-white lines are, are, of course, you know, terrified by, by, these, by these new kind of um, uh, opportunities that black folks receive in Europe. And so, and so it's, it's this kind of constant struggle um, to, on the part of the military, it's a struggle to kind of reinscribe these racial boundaries, reinscribe these black-white lines when they're not, uh, when, when, when locals in Europe oftentimes are not kind of respecting those lines, nor are African-American troops either. In fact, African-American troops, again, are now trans, just as the military is transplanting their color lines to places like Europe, African-American troops are transplanting their civil rights struggle to battle against those color lines. And in some cases, they're, they're receiving all kinds of help from European friends. And in your conclusion, you look at all these different aftermaths, including different perspectives that Black and uh, Japanese, other soldiers have about the war. Um, I was struck by uh, the the one um, Black veteran who came back from the China-Burma-India theater who, who says that, quote, I saw many white and colored soldiers shake hands with one another when the ship docked in Seattle, Washington, and as they parted for various separation centers, I left the service convinced that the United States can and should have a democratic army. Um, you know, a, a, a Tuskegee Airman recalled walking down the gangplank and a white soldier barking the following orders, blacks over here, whites over here. Um, yeah. and, and another veteran, who was black reported his friends telling him of white and colored signs on the docks the minute they disembarked in U.S. ports. So, what what's the conclusion of of this story in the sense of um, the divisions that sort of, in certain ways, are at times um, muddled over and muddled through overseas? But when people come back home, what what kind of what kind of sort of social political context that they land back into? And what did, what did the war experience inspire in both Black and other uh, people of color when they returned home? Right. So, I mean, just, you know, just to kind of set it up, the, you know, again, the wartime experiences overseas could be so complex, right? So they could, for Black soldiers, it could involve, uh, you know, a romantic relationship with a French woman, um, but it also could involve, you know, violent attempts on the part of the U.S. military to 
um, to to reestablish racist lines um, everywhere uh, in black soldiers' lives overseas, right? So it, it was this kind of mix of things. And the same um, went for uh, non-black minority soldiers, you know? So, so Japanese Americans, for example, who, as I mentioned earlier, right, faced all kinds of racist restrictions to joining up. Um, they were more than any other non-black group um, uh, they were segregated in, in, in certain units. Um, and yet by the time they get overseas, they're being hailed as these kind of, um, heroic, manly American soldiers, um, being, you know, celebrated by their white comrades in arms as, as kind of quintessential American troops. Um, and oftentimes, by the way, um, this kind of celebration of Japanese American troops was in direct contrast to a kind of denigration of African American troops. So there's a way, a way in which Japanese Americans are getting leveraged against African American troops that, you know, the, the, the kind of celebration of Japanese American troops was dependent upon the, the, the denigration of black troops. So, so that's how putting these stories in context can really help us to better understand um, these these complex dynamics, but in any case, the the bottom line is these troops are returning, having experienced not one thing, not two things, but all kinds of different things when it came to uh, race and racism in uniform. And so you see that complexity once they're um, uh, dis once once they're returning to the United States. So you offered a couple of those stories about you know people returning home on these troop transports and and getting off the dock and everyone's kind of hugging and shaking hands and some people feel hopeful that hey maybe America can be a racial democracy look at all these uh new kind of interracial bonds that were created through service in the military during the war so there's that kind of happy a, a, a seemingly happy ending but on the other hand you have people remembering Go, you know, walking down the gangplank and U.S. military officials basically saying black folks over there, white folks over there. Right. So, again, this effort to reinscribe racial boundaries. So that complexity is is really what what animates the post-war years. Right. So my conclusion, I kind of try to lay out the both the, the ways in which the military experienced during the war made America a more egalitarian place and the ways in which it made America a much less egalitarian place. So, for example, um, on the one hand, you know, the military experience, um, you know, emboldened all kinds of American troops, American troops of color and, and some minority of white troops to say, you know what, we just sacrificed or potentially sacrificed our lives. We just um, sacrificed so much in our lives to 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 fight for the United States, and this was supposedly for the four freedoms. This was supposedly for democracy, and we really need to make this a reality in the United States, you know. And so, folks come back um, having donned the uniform to fight for the U.S. and to fight for all these, you know, um, wonderful ideals. And and they and they say, you know what? This really needs to be a reality in the United States. America talks a good game about democracy, but we need to make that a reality for all people: African Americans, Mexican Americans, Japanese Americans, and so forth. And so, what you see is this, you know, profound reinvigoration. Civil rights struggles are happening throughout the war in the military and outside of the military. But when veterans come back, it's this kind of whole new. Um, group of 
foot soldiers that are newly um, uh, in feeling newly enfranchised, feeling newly empowered to to fight to make America a better place, a more egalitarian place. And so there's that story, and that's kind of a common story I think we tell ourselves because it's it's kind of a happy ending for the war. That yeah, there was a lot of racism, but nonetheless, folks came back and they became. Um, you know, key members of post-war civil rights movements and made America a better place. Um, there's a lot of truth to that. And I, and I spell that out in my conclusion, but that's not the only story, you know? So there are also ways in which the U.S. military and its deep, deep commitments to racism, um, you know, um, um, interfered with, with, um, with the move to make America a more democratic place. Um, and so I'll just give you some examples. For one thing, of course, it traumatized and killed an unknown number of soldiers of color, especially black soldiers, but older soldiers as well. So, for example, I tell the story of my wife's grand, of my wife's grandfather, who served in the U.S. Army, Japanese American man, serves in the U.S. Army. Uh, I was able to find that he wrote to Secretary Stimson, the Secretary of War during the war saying essentially, you know what, send me to Japan. No one thinks I'm a real American. Everyone's cursing me out and calling me a Jap and saying I don't deserve to wear an American uniform. And so you know what, if you think I'm Japanese, I don't want to be in the U.S. Army anymore. Send me to Japan. And they don't, the U.S. military doesn't, uh, you know, uh, accede to this request, but they do send him to this kind of hard labor battalion, and he's closely surveilled for the rest of the war. He gets uh, an other than honorable discharge, which restricts his access to the GI Bill benefit, GI Bill benefits after the war. And he really struggles for the rest of his life and dies young, an alcoholic. And I have to believe that part of his, his struggles after the war um, related directly back to the traumas that he faced as an American soldier during World War II, right? So I don't want to lose lose track of that. Or, you know, John Hope Franklin tells a moving story about how his brother, who I think was a, a principal of a high school, you know, ends up dying very shortly after the war um, because of because of the the immense uh, suffering that he faced during the war uh, at the hands of white supposed comrades in arms. Um, and so I, I don't want to kind of I don't want the kind of happy story of civil post-war civil rights activism to kind of drown out some of these more sobering tales because you know the racism was, you know, again, so expansive. And obviously the effects of that expansive racism didn't end when the war ended, didn't end when men came back or women came back from serving. That could continue to shape people's lives long into the post-war years. Um, so that's just one effect. But, you know, uh, the another effect is that these divisions and they again it wasn't just the black white division but the divisions between Japanese Americans and other troops the divisions between say American Indians and other troops all of this kind of complex welter of color lines was really confusing and it kind of further etched in American life these deep deep racist divisions that 16 million people in the US military that's like well, I don't know, 12% of the U.S. population. This was a, 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 you know, a significant part of their day-to-day -day life at a very impressionable age. And so these deep racist divisions shaped 
all kinds of Americans' views about what was possible and what was desirable in the post-war years. You know, and so there were all these kind of efforts to organize interracially in unions and in other kinds of places during the war. But a lot of that interracialism kind of stumbled in the post-war years. And some of that had to do with the Cold War. Some of that had to do with the Red Scare. Some of that had to do with attacks on the left. But I actually think a big part of it also had to do with a factor that folks haven't really talked too much about. And that is the deep divisions that, again, 16 million service members experienced on a daily basis while serving in the U.S. military during the war. So that just gives you a taste of just some of the complex consequences of racist divisions and battles over racist divisions in the military during World War II. Well, that's a great way to end our conversation. You end the book uh, by talking about the overrepresentation of uh, white fatalities uh, during World War II. And you say, viewed through, viewed this way, military white supremacy crowned few true victors. So it has been with all forms of white supremacy. So thank you. This has been a wonderful conversation. We've been talking with, um, I've been talking with Tom Guglielmo, who is the author of Divisions, A New History of Racism and Resistance in America's World War II Military, uh, who's also professor and chair of the Department of American Studies at George Washington University, uh, the author of White on Arrival, um, which is an award-winning book. But I want everyone to go out and get Divisions, <laughs> A New History <laughs> of Racism and Resistance in America's World War II Military, uh, published by Oxford University Press. This is brand new. It's got the a brilliant painting by Charles White, Soldier, on it. And it's really a, a fantastic, um, you know, definitive history of, of race and racism in, in the U.S. military during the Second World War. So, Tom, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Peniel. Really, really, really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L. J-O-S-E-P-H and our website csrd.lbj.utexas.edu and the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.